It's surprising in my surroundings I'm finding the quietest estates these days This representation of storm brewing Amazed that the focus remains The vocal focal point of my change Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast I'm your host, Matt Chittam And this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there Who are working hard to get better While balancing running with the rest of their lives Let me tell you, this episode is for you It is with Ben Rosario one of the best running coaches in the world, head coach of NAZ Elite, and also co-author of a new book, Run Like a Pro, Even If You're Slow, that he co-authored with Matt Fitzgerald, who's been on this podcast, who's been on every podcast, who's one of the best running authors in the country. Before we get into it, let's give a shout out to the Eugene Marathon, six weeks away. Can you believe it? can't wait for this sucker. I can't wait. We just had a half marathon on my schedule this past weekend, and now I'm going to be ramping up those long runs at 14 today. Got next week, 16, then 18, then 20, then 22. I am so excited for the marathon, but don't forget, they got the half marathon as well. And if you've been running, why not just jump into the half? You know, if you've been doing your normal long runs, you can make those uh, decisions pretty spontaneously. And I cannot wait to head to Track Town, USA for everything that Eugene has to offer. Come and join me. We're going to do a whole bunch of live shows to say nothing of finishing at Hayward Field. Historic Hayward Field. I shouldn't say historic. It's brand new. But, but you know, you get the, the historic field of Track Town, USA with the best track arena maybe in the world. Certainly in the United States, I can't wait to be there. I certainly cannot wait. Head to eugenemarathon.com today and check it out for yourself. Now, Ben Rosario, this guy's the man. I love talking to him as just as impressive as a coach as he is, as knowledgeable as he is. He's just such a down-to-earth guy to talk to. He, he makes things so relatable despite his overwhelming expertise in the area and this book, Run Like a Pro, even if you're slow, is designed for dedicated amateur runners. So, of course, we had to have him on the podcast that is also designed for dedicated amateur runners just like you. As you'll hear at the end of the episode, I picked up uh, the Audible version of this book. You can pick up the other versions anywhere you normally uh, you know, find books, wherever books are sold. Is that, is that what they say? Basically, Amazon or Barnes & Noble. And hopefully, your local individual or independent book retailer as well. Let's skip the preamble. Let's get into it with Ben Rosario. All right, we are back again with Ben Rosario, who has graced us with his presence. Ben is such an awesome guy, a fantastic coach at the NAS Elite, and also a now a multi-time author. Ben, did you think growing up that you'd be a multi-time author? <laughs> I don't know uh, when I thought I might write a book, but I did eventually think I would write a book. I have always liked writing. I went I went to school and studied uh, communications with an emphasis in journalism. And I think when I first got to college, I kind of thought that's what I would do is, is be a journalist. But things haven't worked out that way. But I have used my writing skills in a lot of different ways and um, including books. Well, you talk to a lot of journalists. So do you ever find yourself wondering like, hey, I would have phrased that question differently. Or who trained you, by the way? You're not doing a good job as you should be doing. I'm certainly uh I'm certainly critical uh behind the scenes. Not you know, not uh, not publicly, but uh no, when I when I read things, I certainly uh, read it with a critical eye for sure. 
I love it. Well, you have like a special episode of this. of the, You can chronicle my missteps as an interviewer, <laughs> post-podcast. And we will put it out there as an ex- exclusive content. Ben Rosario ripping Matt Chittum again <laughs> as he tries to, an- tries to ask intelligent questions. So we should say, your book, Run Like a Pro, Even If You're Slow, which you co-wrote with Matt Fitzgerald, who is a legend in the writing, in the writing space, I should say, uh, within the running space itself, um, and someone who you are. Well, you, you guys have a great relationship, um, as evidenced by his book that's chronicled his time with you in Flagstaff, where he ultimately, spoiler alert, you know, set a PR at the Chicago Marathon. I felt like that was a great kind of first step in this kind of running. I don't know if maybe it won't be a trilogy. Who knows? Maybe you're, maybe you're, you're on the path to write more books, but kind of like the first step in this. Um, when I first started reading this book, it seemed like it was like a, um, in a way, a situation where the the first book with 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 Matt was kind of like a show me don't tell me where this was kind of the reverse where we've always sh- we've already shown you what the what the proper methodology is here but we're going to really lay it out and really kind of hammer you with the exact details of what this process was so I guess my first question is in a very long winded way of saying it was after that first book that Matt wrote did you think that you would need to put out a book like this. Well, I think it was Matt's vision to do this all along. So he actually mentioned this to me way back in 2017 when he was here in Flagstaff saying that, hey, we need to write a book together eventually. And of course, I was all for it. But I knew that that book that he was writing back then, Running the Dream, was meant to be a narrative, a story, uh, a, a personal story of his journey Uh, coming here, training like a pro, and seeing if he could set a personal best at 46 years old, um, doing all the little things and, and, you know, literally living like a pro, training like a pro every day for three or four months. And of course he did. So uh, the the sort of, as you say, the the natural evolution of that was then to um, take that story and turn it more into a how-to kind of book, which is more what I would call run like a pro even if you're slow. Running the dream is a, is a is an awesome story and uh, told in the first person from Matt. And then run like a pro even if you're slow is Matt and I breaking down all of those little things, you know, because, because training like a pro involves a lot more than just the workouts. But Matt's point is – it doesn't matter how fast you are, you know, he, and that's, that's the big thing right off the gate that or right out of the gates that he sort of explains in the book, which is so many amateur runners think, oh, well, I, I can't do that. I can't do that. I can't do that. I can't do that. That's for the pros. But he's saying, no, you absolutely can. I promise you, you can eat better. You can get more sleep. You can take recovery more seriously. You can do strength work. You, I, you know, and he's right. You can do all those things. And again, his point is, if you do, you will get better just like the pros do. It's their job, so they have to do it. But obviously it works or they wouldn't do it. You know, they wouldn't waste their time. And what he's saying is you're, you're just the same as them. And, and of course, I agree with that. That's sort of been my um, – that's one of, been one of my things, if you will, um, since, I, since I've gotten into this industry right from the beginning. In retrospect, I almost – like the idea of reading Run Like a Pro, even if you're slow, before reading um, Matt's book, uh, Running the Dream. 
Like, I feel like it's almost nice to have like the, the lessons first and then seeing being put into practice in a narrative context. Um, again, they came out in, in, in the other order. So obviously for most people, they'll read them in the order that they came out. But I, I almost like the idea of reading them in reverse to kind of like hammer home the concepts and then like, all right, let's see it put into practice. Yeah, I guess you could call this a prequel, <laughs> but uh, in, in that sense. But yeah, I mean, the, the idea when Matt came here in 2017 was he was going to immerse himself in our culture and become a part of our professional running team. And a part of being on the team is committing yourself to all those extra things that you have to do beyond running. Um, and, you know, I, I do think he knew – I don't think we – what I'm trying to say is I don't think we could have written it that way. I think in in a, in a way we needed the proof of concept uh, first uh, be, because um, it made writing this book easier. We had so many great examples, and you know he he needed to be around us all the time for that length of time to really because a lot of the examples he uses in Run Like a Pro, even if you're slow, are from his time here. Um, I, I know he uses Matt Yano as, as an example, who was on our team at that time. Stephanie Bruce is mentioned a lot in the book and, and the things she does. Kellen Taylor's mentioned in the book, the list goes on and on. And so we kind of needed from an anecdotal perspective, we needed that experience first, uh, in order to write this book. Yeah. And one of the common themes in both of them was like Matt's sur not surprise, but the fact that so much of the stuff he wasn't doing as an amateur runner, who again, who was well-versed in the space, who had run really well, who had put books out about running, who was coaching runners. Like he, he was not an amateur in the, I guess the truest sense of the word, right? Um, he was someone who was certainly at, at the higher end of amateur running, uh, not just in ability and talent, but also in terms of just general knowledge. But even with that said, it was surprising how a book like this isn't just for people who are like, oh, wow, this is me just kind of getting into the space for the first time. What's it like? And it can certainly be a, uh, um, a valuable, valuable piece for someone like that. But even someone like Matt, who was the other end of the spectrum from an amateur running perspective, still learning day in and day out stuff that he not only didn't know, but had never put into practice uh, consistently. Yeah. I, I mean, he... He was surprised, I think, about how much uh, or how much he improved over the over that time here. And I know one of the things he really learned um, from a training perspective was, hey, I can actually handle more volume than I thought, but I have to slow down on my easy runs. And I kind of have to slow down on my workouts too. You know, one of the things he did here was he got a lot more volume in his workouts because he wasn't doing everything at 5K, 10K pace. I think that's that's such a um, common – I mean, this is a strong thing to say, but it's in my opinion anyway, it's a common mistake. Um, people, people feel like they need to be hurting on workouts. And so 5K, 10K pace kind of hurts. And so you do the typical – you know, six by 800, you know, four or five by one mile. Um, and, and those things hurt and they're really hard and you breathe really hard and your form breaks down and all these things. But I would argue that the better zone to train in quite often is more of the lactate threshold zone. So it's a little slower than that, more of what you could run for one hour um, or even a little slower than that. And you can actually do way more repeats, get way more volume, master running fast and relaxed. And that will actually help you not only for the half marathon and marathon, but also for the 5K and 10K. 
Um, he actually ran a pretty quick 5K uh, during his time here as he was building up toward toward the Chicago Marathon. So, um, you know, that that helped him understand some things, I think, about training or, or, or perhaps perhaps tweak, you know, his his philosophy a little bit about training. And yeah, we 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 get to all of that in this book. We, we leave no stone unturned in this book. It's very long, uh, but I hope it's a good read. But but basically what happens if, if people are listening and haven't read it is each chapter is a new topic. And Matt takes you through that topic in detail from a scientific perspective, gives examples, gives studies, uh, really goes in depth. And then I simply tack on some anecdotal evidence at the end of the chapter to verify or give credibility to what Matt has said in the previous uh, chapter. And he needs all the credibility he can get, frankly. Let's be honest. <laughs> no, uh, no, 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 no. Of course, of course. <laughs> Honestly, the book would be would be just fine without my little anecdotes, but I think, or I hope anyway, that it provides a little bit of levity in some cases, uh, but also also some um, some real-world evidence. No, it's really good. And, and what you just brought up in terms of training intensities really gets hammered home, both in chapter three and chapter four, which is manage the mileage like a pro and balance intensities like a pro. And one of the, the overarching themes in both of those chapters is not only, you know, decreasing this, usually for most people, decreasing the speed of your easy running. And Matt provides a number of different methods and metrics that people can look at in order to do something like that. But in addition, also looking at the other end of the spectrum of, hey, part of the reason you're doing this, not the sole reason, but a big part of it is so that you can spend more time in the hard zone um, from a That's running right. perspective, right? So that when you're going into, if you're going to use the 80-20 rule as the model, which it does in the book, you're that when you're in that, you know, so you really can do the 20% at high intensity. And I think when sometimes when people look at the 80-20 model, they don't realize how much 20% is from mm -hmm. a hard perspective. I think they just view it as like, wow, a lot less than easy. But 20% moderate to hard, so if you're going to put it into three different categories of easy, moderate, hard, uh, that's no joke. And you know, especially to, to maintain that week after week, it really does necessitate a, a slowing down on some of those easy days just to, to manage that kind of hard effort. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you're running easier so that you can run harder. <laughs> it's, it's the easiest way to put it. And 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 look, the title of the book is what it is. Run like a pro, even if you're slow. He's saying that's what the pros do. He saw it. He lived it. He saw, he was able to run easy one, runs with pros, with people who could run under 210 in the marathon uh, on the men's side, women who could run 225 in the marathon. He, he could run with them, even though that was a lot faster than he could run because they ran so easy on their easy days. Um but when it came to the hard days, they were able to go out and do some amazing things because they were fresh and ready to go. And I, by fresh is relative, of course. But but what I mean is their their muscles, tendons, ligaments, and overall energy level was uh, they they in that sense uh, taking all those things together, they were ready to to perform at a very high level uh, on a workout that. If they hadn't done those things, if they hadn't run easy on their easy days, if they haven't if they hadn't recovered and used uh, all the latest and greatest recovery tools and methods, if they haven't if they hadn't slept well, if they hadn't done all those things in the days prior to that workout, they wouldn't be able to perform at the same level. And and that's really what Matt's getting at in the book, and that's what I'm trying to um, to explain in the book as well is that um, you know this if you really want to get better, these are the things you have to do. And actually, they're not that crazy. You know, I, I think it's important to, to and I, I think anyway in the book, uh, 
we do a good job of explaining that. It's not that hard to go to bed a half hour earlier and then to do the math and say, boy, if I go to bed a half hour earlier every night for a full year, think about how much sleep that is. It's not that hard to make yourself a smoothie so that it's ready for you in the car after your long run so that you get fuel in within a half hour of finishing your long run. It's not that hard to, if you have the means, to get a massage every month. <laughs> you know, you can find an hour somewhere to get a massage. And, and, and when you start adding those things up, it makes a huge difference. That's what we're trying to get at. Yeah, absolutely. And going back to the, the hard efforts on the training runs, oftentimes when a, I'm not going to classify somebody, it's, it's easy for a runner to hear that and think and, and kind of dive down like with like a microscope to think of like every rep is going to, you're working a hammer. Yeah, yeah. As opposed to the, you know, the workout itself, the entity of the workout was hard, not necessarily every rep was like, hey, we are blasting through walls here. We are going to the max. And you um, you, you and Matt put in some sample, um, just kind of like listing out like sample workouts. I think it was like chapter eight or nine. And it was like, all right, like we're going to be doing, say, three by two mile at roughly half marathon effort. It's not what you, it's you I think you used a different framework. But and then like, you know, you know, other stuff like our quarter mile repeats at 5K pace, right? Stuff like that. Something where if someone were going to do like, say a quarter of the workout, a quarter of the way in, they wouldn't be really, you know, terribly fatigued a quarter of the way in. And yet the totality of the work would definitely be thought of as hard. So can you just talk about the discrepancy there and how some people might dig themselves too deep a hole early in a workout or just be framing it incorrectly in their mind for some of these harder sessions? Yeah, I mean, I think in some ways the the word hard is is the problem <laughs> because hard intuitively you think it's going to hurt. And I, I understand that. I understand that thinking. Uh, but to your point, what what we're defining as hard is the workout overall and what makes it hard can be different. So what makes a really marathon specific workout hard is actually not the pace, but think about it. What makes a marathon hard is not actually the pace. I mean, who among us would have trouble running a few miles at marathon pace? That's not really that hard. The, the challenge physically of the marathon is the distance and the ability of your muscles and tendons and ligaments to handle the pounding of 26.2 miles on the road. That's the hard thing about the marathon. So when we talk about marathon workouts, we need to be preparing our bodies and our minds for the challenge of the marathon, those challenges that I just mentioned. So a marathon workout that's hard might be 15 times one kilometer at a pace that you could run at for an hour. Uh, that's a hard marathon workout. But it's not hard in the same way that you might remember <laughs> running eight by 400 in high school as hard as you could and then puking in the trash can afterward. It's a different kind of hard. It's a hard in the same way that the marathon is hard. You run 15 by a kilometer and the first few are fine. But then you start thinking, God, am I going to make it to the end? Whew, my legs are starting to get heavy. Whew, this is starting to get tough. And then you get done. <laughs> that, that's the hard part of a workout like that. And I know that workout seems really crazy, but again, it's because you're putting it in the context of hard kilometer repeats, uh, or I should say fast kilometer repeats. Uh, these, are, these are actually hard in a different way. And again, that's what Matt 
found is he saw a huge jump in his fitness because he was getting more work in overall. Yeah, it was a little slower than, you know, five times 1K at 5K pace, but it was better work in terms of what he was preparing for. Right. And that was, that was like, a, those are some classic examples with the half, had a half marathon, sorry, half marathon, half mile repeats or the 1K repeats getting ready for the 5K where you're blasting it and you get to the fourth rep and you're like, good Lord, how am I going to do two more of these? Yeah. These are insane. Um, and it really is, uh, the idea. And you referenced this over and over again in the, in the book and, and so many pros who have had on and, I don't have a lot of pros on this show, but the ones who do come on who talk about what can help amateur runners, they say this all the time of like, you know, not crushing it so hard in a workout that say like you can't run the next day, right? There's a great like barometer, right? If you're yeah. so sore that you can't run the next day, like that's a great that's that shows that, you know, that you just pushed it too hard there, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it was like the volume or the speed or the intensity, and it it really can come back to get you. Um I think for a lot of people, they get worried for the marathon if they're not doing a ton of miles at marathon pace, especially because, as you know, in the short term, it's easy to run a lot of miles at marathon pace in training. And it's kind of like the, the thought can be like, hey, well, why not do this, right? Kind of like the example in the book that you gave, I think it was a little cross player who's like, if you want to get better at the mile, why don't you just like run a mile as hard as you can every day until you get fast? And it's like that cognitive dissonance doesn't quite work. That's right. Yeah. A lot, a lot of training is kind of counterintuitive and I get that. And that's, that's, that's one of the weird things about running and about physiology. And, you know, I, I just can't praise Matt enough. Like every chapter, he does such a good job because I think you're right. You hear people say these things, but I think sometimes, especially some people, you know, the, the way they're wired, they need evidence. And so Matt just goes into such detail in every chapter, citing studies, giving you the real facts, helping you understand not only that, hey, this is, we're not just telling you, hey, this is the case, just believe us. He's saying, no, look, here's why. Like, think about it. Here's the science. Here's the physiology. He helps you understand the, the, the why behind all these things you and I are talking about. And I hope anyway that that will, will help people. I mean, I think it's, you know, it's that combination of the scientific side of things and the anecdotal side that I hope people finish this book and realize, okay, these guys do know what they're talking about. I'm going to give some of these things a shot. In one way, I feel like when people think about training like the pros, I feel like one common theme that often gets taken and incorrectly so is when pros uh, who maybe typically train at, you know, say a 95 to 120 miles a week if they're training for a marathon or something like that all of a sudden dip down a little bit if they're focusing more on like the 3k or the 5k and then an amateur runner be like see they're training less for a 5k so i should train less for a 5k so talk you talk to us about like the difference there and why that doesn't necessarily apply to most amateur runners and why as you mentioned with matt earlier why so many amateur runners and even pros will set PRs at shorter distances as they're preparing for races of longer distances. Yeah, I, I think the reason that that happens is there are more gains to be made aerobically and in the threshold zone than there are to be made in the shorter zones. So I guess a way to put it would be the the farther down you go or the, the shorter you go in distance, the less room there is to improve. So you know, 
your 400 meter, for example, if you were to go out and run a 400 meter as fast as you could, you could train for that distance for a long time and not make much of an improvement at all <laughs> because it's pretty it's pretty talent oriented. Um, there's just not there's just not that much you can do physiologically to improve that pure speed. It's just slight, slight percentage points. And look, if that's what you want to do, certainly you can try. But there are enormous uh, gains to be made aerobically in the aerobic system. So quick little physiological example, your heart is actually getting stronger when you run. Your heart is a muscle. So the left ventricle actually grows, gets bigger, gets stronger, gets more efficient the more and more we run. Um, the more efficient the left ventricle is, uh, the more blood shoots out of the heart, uh, down into the capillaries and eventually into the muscles, delivering oxygen in a more efficient way. Um, and look, that's that's everything. <laughs> the, the, the quicker you can get oxygen to your muscles – the longer you can sustain a hard effort. And that's that's why even at a 5K, for example, the, the aerobically strong athlete is going to beat the athlete who does not run very much but might be fairly talented um, because the aerobically strong athlete, the aerobically trained athlete – their body is so much more efficient. And, you know, what I used to do when talking to groups about this is I'd say, hey, raise your hand if you've ever hit the wall. You know, if you've ever gotten to the point in a race where you're just done. And, you know, everybody raises their hand or most people raise their hand. And, and I just basically say, well, wouldn't it be nicer if that happened later in the race? <laughs> yes. Okay, well, the, the way to do that is to get aerobically stronger. That's all there is to it. And, and that's what we're trying to do. And a common theme uh, when I talk to people like yourself is – the the discrepancy that a lot of amateur runners feel like there is between how much the aerobic system plays a part in, say, the 5K compared to the marathon, right? I feel like a lot of folks just assume that, you know, the 5K is just working fundamentally different systems than the marathon. However, and, and, and I'm raising my hand here, I was one of those people for a very long time, say, in my, you know, in my teenage years, in my 20s, and yet it couldn't be further from the truth. Yeah, I mean, look, it's it's not always the case, of course, because there's there's biomechanical differences. But look at Elliot Kipchoge, the greatest marathoner of all time. Earlier in his career, he was one of the best five thousand meter runners on the planet. Oh, some of those YouTube clips are just the best. Those are some of my go tos when I'm on the treadmill. Yeah, and and again, that's not always the case. But but the point is, the physiology between those two events aren't as different as you would think. You can look up charts on how much of the 5k is run in an aerobic in an aerobic state and it's well gosh i should know this right uh it's i think an, for the i know for the mile it's like 87 percent, and that's the mile oh it's definitely in, in the 5k it's definitely in the 90s i yeah. don't know the exact percentage but it's above 90 percent of the race is run aerobically and so you think about it and you're like well shouldn't i be training my aerobic system at least 90 percent of the time <laughs> i mean you're only anaerobic you're only without oxygen for the very end of the race. I mean, we're talking the last 200 meters. So why would you spend all your time working on that zone? That zone needs to be touched, of course, so you can tap into it at the end. But the the more aerobically strong you are, the better you're going to run at 5,000 meters for sure. 
Yeah, and I think I, that's it's it's so key, and it's on some level is counterintuitive because I know five k training can feel different than marathon training sometimes, and and all of that. But it really is true, and it's something that again, I remember had uh, Rebecca Mara on the podcast like a year ago. And she was like, she was nailing this point over and over and over again. I know for a lot of people, it, they came away from that conversation like, all right, this was like a watershed moment for them. Like, all right, now I'm getting it. And that was a big thing for them. Let's talk about mileage. All right. And Matt introduces the seven hour rule, um, which I hadn't read about in books before. I know I, I, I kind of knew about it a little bit, but uh, he really hammers home the seven hour rule in the in the book and just talking about the idea of really taking into account time, not instead of miles, but really understanding how time plays a part in running and, and things like that. And as you've worked with amateur runners and getting to know amateur runners through your time in Flagstaff, interacting with a whole variety of people, what's been kind of the the moments where you've really understood that like, hey, some of these amateur runners just don't quite understand um, the importance of increasing their mileage to the point that um, can help them, but also be sustainable. Because I feel like for a lot of people, they just kind of look at round numbers and just basically treat it like a dartboard and just kind of like, all right, today, this this month is 40, next month is 50. And and it, it seems a little haphazard at times. Yeah, I guess so. I, I the, Probably the biggest thing is they, they um, runners of all ability levels, Probably one, I guess I would say one of the biggest mistakes is they associate more mileage with greater injury risk. And I would say that is not true um, in all cases. In, injuries happen for a variety of reasons. But if you think about the hardest thing you do running on your body is running fast. Because you're asking more, you're, you're hitting the ground harder. There's more force being driven into the ground. Uh, the, the push-off phase is harder, more dynamic. Uh, you're asking more of your lower legs, your hamstrings. Everything is, is working uh, harder when you run fast. So I'm not telling you not to run fast, but, I, but I'm saying that, you, you know, if, if you were to go out and run super easy every day for a month, Given, you know, a certain amount of fitness beforehand, okay? I'm not saying starting off from scratch. But but given that you're a runner and that you run on the regular, if you just ran easy for a month, I would find it very hard to believe you would get hurt. <laughs> but if you went out for a month and said, I am going to work out hard every other day and I'm going to do repeats on the track every other day for a month, your injury risk would be far greater than person one who was just going out and running every day. And my point is, when you talk about mileage, let's not fear mileage. Let's try to look at it as, okay, how many miles can I run per week or how much time can I spend on my feet per week uh, from, a, from a minute's perspective or an hour's perspective and still get the work I – still get the hard work in that I need – uh, and still get the recovery that I need and the sleep that I need. That's really what we're trying to find is your sweet spot. What, what, what's optimal for you as an individual? And that process is ongoing, first of all. Uh, and it, 
and it can change. It can change because of life stress uh, at a certain period in your in your life. Uh, it can change because of age. Uh, as we get older, that mileage might come down a little bit. So it's it's a it's a moving target. But that's what we're trying to find out is what's the sweet spot for me. We found that for Matt when he was here, uh, and you know that's what I'm trying to do with my pro runners. And not everybody's the same. I use this example in the book. Lauren Parquet, who's run 15:10 for 5,000 meters, runs 65 miles a week. Kellen Taylor, who's run 1511, runs 110 miles a week. Well, guess what? They've both run the same time for 5,000 meters. Um, I just think it's about finding what's right for you. Yeah. Speak, talking about finding what's right for you, you also talk about um, off days and uh, relative off days. I can, my term might not be, you know, rest, rest days and relative rest days. That's it. And, um, with the relative rest days being a significant decrease in mileage on that day, also a very low intensity, which basically serves as a rest day, but kind of a moving rest day in a sense. Now, when you're thinking about amateur runners and their rest days and relative rest days, how would you suggest, again, this is painting with a very broad brush. So Please, you know, feel free to add as many like footnotes or exceptions into the, your answer as you like. But say, like, at, say, thinking about amateur runners who were on their feet all day—nurses, teachers—you worked at a running store, right? Mm-hmm. You know this, right? Mm-hmm. You you had a you had a running store in the St. Louis area for for several years, so you were on your feet all the time too, and you were doing a lot of training. How does rest days and relative rest days play a part in someone's schedule if they are constantly on the move during their workday? Well, you know, the way I remember it being on my feet all the time was the body's kind of an amazing machine and you do get somewhat used to it. You do, you do get somewhat calloused. Uh, it's not easy at first if you get a new job that has a lot of uh, time on feet, but uh, you, you do get used to it. Um, you know, I think for those type of jobs, if you can, it's better to run in the morning before work uh, if possible. But it's not impossible to run after work. You certainly can do it. Um, I'm trying to think how to answer this question. I, I would say this, it's not that hard, and I've said that phrase a lot, uh, but it's, you know, I don't know how else to say it. It's not that hard to go out and jog for 30 minutes. Uh, if, you're, if you're a fit runner, a runner who, regardless of your ability and your talent, if you're training, it's not that hard to go out and knock out 20 or 30 minutes. And I guess I would say 20 or 30 minutes of jogging is better than zero minutes of jogging when it comes to your heart and your aerobic system. You are getting benefits from a 20 or 30 minute jog. So if you get done with a long shift and you feel like you need to get a little bit of training in, just go out for a 20 or 30 minute jog. That's better than zero. And it really isn't that hard on your body. And it does help the heart and lungs. And that's what we're trying to do is get the heart and lungs to be as efficient uh, and as strong as possible. And so, you know, four is better than zero. I love this because this is a point that comes up all the time, it, all the time, right? People who are like, all right, if I can't fix this, if I can't fit my scheduled run in, then it's not going to happen. And, you know, it, no matter how many times we dress it on this podcast, I know it, it really, it's hard for people to wrap their head around the fact that a 20 minute run actually does something. So would you mind just diving into that a little bit more? Because I know it's a topic for a lot of people that, that, you know, talking again about cognitive dissonance, it doesn't quite ring true when they first hear it. All right. Well, I'll, I'll talk about physiological benefits and mental benefits. Physiologically, I spoke about it earlier. The Every time we run for 20 minutes or more, these 
these systems that I mentioned, the, 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 the heart, uh, the capillaries, the mitochondria uh, are actually being uh, affected every single time we run. The, the mitochondria, the power plant of the cell, you know, um, they can grow. They get bigger. That's amazing, right? That's an amazing thing. And so if you can remember that physiological benefits are taking place every time we run for 20 minutes, um, it's a little more likely to get you out the door because you want as many capillaries as possible. You want your mitochondria to be as big as possible. You want your left ventricle to be as strong as possible. So that's if, – if, you, if you're a science person, maybe it's best to think about it that way. Uh, but let's talk about the mental benefits. Who among us has struggled – and sat there and thought, oh, I really don't want to go for this run. Gosh, I want to do anything but run. Gosh, I want to eat dinner now. I don't want to I, go this out doesn't for run. sound familiar at all. <laughs> I got to be honest. <laughs> Who among us hasn't thought this way and then gone out for the run and been so happy that we did? I mean, who goes out after that mental struggle, runs, and then thinks, oh, I wish I wouldn't have done that? That never happens. You're always proud of yourself that you went out for the run. Those are the best runs. Mentally, those are the best runs. And so I would just say physiologically, there's going to be a benefit. Mentally, there's definitely going to be a benefit. Go out for that little run. And it's funny because the runners who maybe, you know, issue the 20-minute run, see they're either following my schedule or, or whatever, or I'm just not doing it. If you ask them in different areas of their life, if they'd be better off just taking kind of like a, a JV version of their effort, would it help them? They would say yes, right? So say like their kid was going to go out and shoot baskets for five minutes. Is that better than zero? They'd say, of course it is. Or they're gonna, <laughs> their kid's going to work on like their penmanship for five minutes versus zero. Like, of yep. course that would help, right? And and it feel like you could just list a million different things here. But for some reason, when it comes to running, it just doesn't quite ring true for a lot of people. But ultimately, especially over time, if there's like a number of times where you make that that substitution from zero to 20 to 30, it can really add up. Oh, no question. No question. I mean, you do the math if you want. <laughs> I mean, uh, imagine every week there's, there's, there's a, a 20 minute run that, uh, that you do. Uh, just do the math on how many minutes that is over the course of a year. Holy cow. All right. Well, I'm going to tell everyone, go get this book. I, I love audiobooks, So that's where I got it. I got mine on Audible. And kudos to you and Matt for getting two people um, reading the book that actually sound a little bit like you guys, which is fantastic. Yeah, we, th it was cool working with a publisher. So like you said, I've done three books. Uh, and uh, this is my third. And this is the first one that I worked with a publisher on. I just self-published the first two. And uh, so Penguin Random House, they were wonderful. And they asked us if we wanted to do the audio, audio book ourselves, Matt and I. And we both said, no, I don't want to do that. <laughs> so they, so then they got a couple of actors and they, you know, sent us the audio, audio files of, of the, uh, you know, just a little snippet. And yeah, they were both great. They both did a wonderful job. Yeah, absolutely. So, and that, that always helps the listening experience. That is for sure. Uh, before we get going, and I did ask you if, you, if this was okay before we, we hopped on the call. Um, I just wanted to ask you just about like what's been going on in track and field because it's really exciting. And for some people, they're looking at like seeing all these records broken and seeing um, even NCAA uh, track and field, like seeing these times for like qualifying for finals and nationals. Like we are seeing an explosion of high level running on the track. It's really exciting. And I was just wondering what, what you as a coach who's coaching people who are part of this and against other people who are part of this, what you're taking from this recent, um, maybe two year uh, explosion in times and, and where you see it going. Yeah, I see all sides of this thing. I, I'm excited that people are 
running so well and so fast. And it's wonderful to see the level of competition that is out there now. I would tell you that we would be very naive not to admit that the technology has played a gigantic role in in these fast times. Uh, the new shoes, uh, the new spikes, uh, even in some cases, the tracks that these times are being run on are are all a part of this. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Um, it's an interesting time because part of what we used to have to do as coaches was make sure that our athletes were as efficient as possible. And we still need to do that. But the shoes uh, have some of the technology and some of the shoes have created a situation where these athletes are more efficient <laughs> um, because the shoes are doing a lot of the work for them. And so what used to be a separator, you know, how strong are you? How strong are your tendons and your muscles and your ligaments? Um, you know, the, those athletes that were more efficient would would break down less uh, quickly than athletes who were not efficient. Well, now if the shoes are, are making you more efficient, that, that's why you see so many races where there's so many people in it for so long because that separator that used to be there is no longer there because everybody's just as efficient as the next person. And so it all comes down to just who's the fittest instead of who's the strongest and who's the most efficient. So some of these variables that used to be there are now, now um, certainly lessened, if not taken away in full. And I don't know, it's just a crazy time. I, I, I'm rambling, but I think that we're recalibrating. We're recalibrating everything right now. And we're not there yet. We don't quite know what everything means yet. Um, and you asked, where is it going to go? I think it's just going to continue. And so that recalibration is probably a moving target uh, as to, uh, you know, wh wh what these things mean. But what's never going to change, Matt, is competition. And what I'm excited about is the same thing that I was excited about when I was in seventh grade and running my first cross-country race trying to win. You know, that was my goal. I want to try to win the race. And I hope that we can get back to a place where that is the number one thing. How well can I run in this race against whoever I'm up against? You know, if, if it's not the win, can I finish fifth? Can I finish 10th? If it's amateur runners, can I win my age group? And that will never change because that is that is always going to be a, a barometer, whereas the times are going to change. Uh, they're going to continue. What, what a four-minute mile meant years ago is not what it means now. Uh, for the amateur runner, what a 24-minute what a, what a 5K was years ago is not what it is now. But the people you're lined up against <laughs> and, and beating people and how many people you beat, that will always be there. So that, that's my hope is that, that, is that we can go back to uh, placing a big emphasis on place and not as much on time. And as someone who loves all sports, I know you've seen this in many other sports that you love and care about. Baseball is a great example, right? Where all of a sudden the metrics didn't matter, but the competition on the field was still fierce and you could still enjoy the competition on the field, even if maybe some of the stats you couldn't put into historical perspective as they were happening. I would still rather have my favorite player win a World Series than have him break a record. <laughs> There you go. I love that. Absolutely. And as I was talking to Peter Bromka last week, Peter's been on the show a number of times and, um, and he's just a great guy and he's had the pleasure of, of trying out a lot of these spikes, um, that are kind of now the, the invoke thing. And most people who are listening to this are roadrunners. They don't wear these kinds of spikes. So I asked him, I was like, Hey, 
you know, what what is the deal with these things? I know you've tried them. He's like, the, the deal with that is that they don't make, it doesn't make you feel that much faster. He goes, the difference is, and this is just one man's opinion, obviously, that I'm just relaying here. He goes, the difference is that they finally feel like like they're comfortable. He goes, you, he goes, I'm sure you can remember when you ran track in high school, spikes were never comfortable. They're just something that you dealt with. And it just felt like, you know, five fangs coming out the bottom of your foot. He goes, they're finally actually comfortable now. And they're, they're, in, they're actually a pleasure to wear. And that's like made all the difference. Well, it's really weird, right? That it took this long because it makes total sense. We, for years and years and years, the, the companies were just trying to make the spikes as minimal as possible. They wanted to feel like it was just a sock on your foot with some spikes coming out the the forefoot. Right, like the Steve Prefontaine movie where like they fall apart at the end of every race. Like, what is going on? Yeah, because you wanted to you wanted to feel fast, you wanted to feel light, and that made sense at the time. But what makes more way more sense is that it's a piece of equipment, and you want to you want to get energy return from that piece of equipment. It's like a golf club um, or a baseball bat. You, 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 want to, um, you want to step on the ground and be assisted by the shoe, not do all the work yourself. That's what, that's what the spikes in these shoes uh, are, are doing now for us. And uh, you know, luckily, we're with Hoka, a company that understood that long ago. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's the whole that was the whole impetus for Hoka in the first place was to be, was to create shoes that helped you fly over the earth, that helped, helped do the work for you. And uh, of course that was the Max Cushion and the, um, and the Meta Rocker and, and all these things that actually you're seeing now across the board and all these brands, Hoka was doing that in 2010. Yeah. The, before Spikes was just about like grip. That was all it was. It was just, we're going to improve grip. That's it. You, you get, yeah. you get no other benefits whatsoever. Even though like our running shoes on the road have all these other benefits, but no, 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 you only get grip here on the track. Yeah, that's right. It's a lot different now. And you know, that's fine. Things are changing and it's okay. I just, I just, um, you know, I'll, I'll take, uh, I'll take a championship style race over a time trial any day of the week, Matt. I love it. I love it. I'd expect nothing less out of you, Ben Rosario. Thank you so much for coming on the show and thank you and Matt for putting together such a fantastic book. All right. Run like a pro, even if you're slow, available everywhere books are sold. <laughs> Ben, thank you so much. Also, big shout out to the Eugene Marathon. Head over to eugenemarathon.com today to check out one of the best races in America. I cannot wait to be in Eugene. Go get Ben and Matt's book today. It's absolutely worth it. It's a fantastic book. And you're not only are you going to want it to read it, you're going to want to reread it because it's chock full of goodness. And it's stuff that needs to be told and retold to us in, in uh, dedicated amateur runners constantly. Because when you have those underlying principles, those wonderful lessons, those are the things that we need to hear all the time. We need to hammer them home so that they are top of mind for us as we try to master our craft, whatever that craft may be, the underlying principles of any endeavor are so important and we can never lose sight of them. And that's exactly what this book provides. So Ben, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for listening to this episode. Have a great day and happy running. This has been a production of Rambling Runner Podcast. This podcast is produced by David Margetti of InPost Media. Thank you to Meta P for the music. His song, Righteous Path, featuring Rex Mayhem and Chip Fu is produced by Symphonic Bang. Yeah. 
enterprising in my surroundings I'm finding the quietest estates these days This representation of storm brewing amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change I'm trying to show this industry I got